Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. And today, two stories from Robert Barr. We've done a couple of his stories previously that you might remember. One called An Alpine Divorce. The other called The Warrior Maid of San Carlos. Barr was a Scottish-Canadian-English novelist and short story author who also published under the pen name Luke Smart. He was born in Glasgow, Scotland, and emigrated to Canada with his parents in 1853, when he was four years old. His favorite genre is mystery, and he's a good action writer as well. We have two stories for you here today. The first, called Miss McMillan, is a story about an incident on a cruise ship. The second, called The Hour and the Man, is a mystery of a sort, with a twist. We hope you enjoy them both. And now, Miss McMillan, by Robert Barr. In the saloon of the fine transatlantic liner, the Clematis, two long tables extend from the piano at one end to the bookcase at the other end of the ample dining room. On each side of this main saloon are four small tables intended to accommodate six or seven persons. At one of these tables sat a pleasant party of four ladies and three gentlemen. Three ladies were from Detroit, and one from Kent in England. At the head of the table sat Mr. Blair, the frosts of many American winters in his hair and beard, while the lines of care in his ragged, cheerful Scottish face told of a life of business crowned with generous success. Mr. Waters, a younger merchant, had all the alert vivacity of the pushing American. He had the distinguished honor of sitting opposite me at the small table. Blair and Waters occupied the same room, number 27. The one had crossed the Atlantic more than 50 times, the other nearly 30. Those figures show the relative proportion of their business experience. The presence of Mr. Blair gave to our table a sort of patriarchal dignity that we all appreciated. If a louder burst of laughter than usual came from where we sat, and the other passengers looked inquiringly our way, the sedate and self-possessed face of Mr. Blair kept us in countenance, and we, who had given way to undue levity, felt ourselves enshrouded by an atmosphere of genial seriousness. This prevented our table from getting the reputation of being funny or frivolous. Some remark that Blair made brought forth the following extraordinary statement from Waters, who told it with the air of a man exposing the pretensions of whited sepulchre. Now, before this voyage goes any further, he began, I have a serious duty to perform which I can shirk no longer, unpleasant though it be. Mr. Blair and myself occupy the same stateroom. Into that stateroom has been set the most lovely basket of flowers. It is not an ordinary basket of flowers, I assure you, ladies. "'There's a beautiful floral arch over a bed of color, "'and I believe there is some tender sentiment "'connected with the display. "'Bon voyage, Al Fiederzane, "'or some such motto marked out in red buds. "'Now those flowers are not for me. "'I think, therefore, that Mr. Blair owes it to this company, "'which has so unanimously placed him at the head of the table, "'to explain how it comes that an elderly gentleman "'gets such a handsome floral tribute sent him "'from some unknown person in New York.' We all looked at Mr. Blair, who gazed with imperturbability at Waters. If you had all crossed with Waters as often as I have, you would know that he is subject to attacks like that. He means well, but occasionally he gives way in the deplorable manner you have just witnessed. Now all there is of it consists in this. A basket of flowers has been sent, no doubt by mistake, to our stateroom. There is nothing but a card on it which says, Room 27. Steward, he cried. "'Would you go to room 27, bring that basket of flowers, "'and set it on this table? "'We may as well have all the benefit of them.' "'The steward soon returned with a large and lovely basket of flowers, 
which he set on the table, shoving the caster and other things aside to make room for it. We all admired it very much, and the handsome young lady on my left asked Mr. Blair's permission to take one of the roses for her own. Now, mind you, said Blair, I cannot grant a flower from the basket, for you see it is as much the property of Waters as of myself, for all of his virtuous indignation. It was sent to the room, and he is one of the occupants. The flowers have evidently been misdirected. The lady referred to take it upon herself to purloin the flowers she wanted. As she did so, a card came into view with the words written in a masculine hand, To Miss McMillan, with the loving regards of Edwin J. Miss McMillan, cried the lady. I wonder if she's on board. I'd give anything to know. We'll have a glance at the passenger list, said Waters. Down among the M's on the longest of cabin passengers appeared the name Miss McMillan. Now, said I, it seems to me that the duty devolves on both Blair and Waters to spare no pains in delicately returning those flowers to their proper owner. I think that both have been very remiss in not doing so long ago. They should apologize publicly to the young lady for having deprived her of the offering for a day and a half. And then I think they owe an apology to this table for the mere pretense that any sane person in New York or elsewhere would go to the trouble of sending either of them a single flower. There will be no apology from me, said Waters, if I do not receive the thanks of Miss McMillan. It will be because good deeds are rarely recognized in this world. I think it must be evident, even to the limited intelligence of my journalistic friend across the table, that Mr. Blair intended to keep those flowers in his stateroom, and, of course, I make no direct charges. The concealment of that card certainly looks bad. It may have been concealed by the sender of the flowers, but to me it looks bad. Of course, said Blair dryly. To you it looks bad. To the pure, etc., etc. Now, said the sentimental lady on my left, while you gentlemen are wasting the time in useless talk, the lady is without her roses. There is one thing that you all seem to miss. It is not the mere value of the bouquet. There is a subtle perfume about an offering like this more delicate than that which nature gave the flowers. Here, here, broke in Waters. I told you, said Blair aside, the kind of fellow Waters is. He thinks nothing of interrupting a lady. Order, both of you, I cried, rapping on the table. The lady from England has the floor. What I was going to say, when Waters interrupted you, when Mr. Waters interrupted me, I was going to say that there seems to me a romantic tinge to this incident that you old married men cannot be expected to appreciate. I looked with surprise at Waters, while he sank back in his seat with the resigned air of a man in the hands of his enemies. We had both been carefully concealing the fact that we were married men, and the blunt announcement of the lady was a painful shock. Waters gave a side nod at Blair, as much to say, He's given it away. I looked reproachfully at my old friend at the head of the table, but he seemed to be absorbed in what our sentimental lady was saying. It is this, she continued. Here is a young lady. Her lover sends her a basket. There may be some hidden meaning that she alone will understand in the very flowers chosen, or in the arrangement of them. The flowers, let us suppose, never reach their destination. The message is unspoken, or rather, spoken but unheard. The young lady grieves at the apparent neglect, and then, in her pride, resents it. She does not write, and he knows not why. The mistake may be discovered too late, 
"'and all because a basket of flowers has been missing.' "'Now, Blair,' said Waters, "'if anything can make you do the square thing, "'surely that appeal will.' "'I shall not so far forget what is due to myself "'and to the dignity of this table "'as to reply to our erratic friend. "'Here is what I propose to do. First, catch our hair. "'Steward, can you find out for me at what table "'and at what seat Miss McMillan is?' While the steward was gone on his errand, Mr. Blair proceeded. "'I will become acquainted with her. Macmillan is a good Scotch name, and Blair is another. On that as a basis, I think we can speedily form an acquaintance. I shall then, in a casual manner, ask her if she knows a young man by the name of Edwin J., and I shall tell you what effect the mention of the name has on her. Then Mr. Waters piped up. "'Now, as part owner in the flower is up to date, I protest against that.' I insist that Miss McMillan be brought to this table, and that we all hear exactly what is said to her. Nevertheless, we agreed that Mr. Blair's proposal was a good one, and the majority sanctioned it. Meanwhile, our sentimental lady had been looking among the crowd for the unconscious Miss McMillan. "'I think I have found her,' she whispered to me. "'Do you see that handsome girl at the captain's table? Really the handsomest girl on board. I thought that distinction rested with our own table.' "'Now, please pay attention. "'Do you see how pensive she is, "'with her cheek resting on her hand? "'I'm sure she is thinking of Edwin.' "'I wouldn't bet on that,' I replied. "'There is considerable motion just now, "'and indications of a storm. "'The pensiveness may have other causes.' "'Here the steward returned "'and reported that Miss McMillan "'had not yet appeared at the table, "'but had her meals taken to her room by the stewardess. "'Blair called to the good-natured, "'portly stewardess of the Clematis,' "'who at that time was passing through the saloon. "'Is Miss McMillan ill?' he asked. "'No, not ill,' replied Mrs. K. "'But she seems very much depressed at leaving home, "'and she has not left her room since we started.' "'There,' said our sentimental lady, triumphantly. "'I would like very much to see her,' said Mr. Blair. "'I have some good news for her.' "'I will ask her to come out. "'It will do her good,' said the stewardess, as she went away.' In a few moments she appeared, and following her came an old woman with white hair and her eyes concealed by a pair of spectacles. "'Miss McMillan,' said the stewardess, "'this is Mr. Blair, who wanted to speak to you.' Although Mr. Blair was, as we all were, astonished to see our mythical young lady changed into a real old woman, he did not lose his equanimity, nor did his kindly face show any surprise, but he evidently forgot the part he had intended to play." "'You will pardon me for troubling you, Miss McMillan,' he said, "'but this basket of flowers was evidently intended for you "'and was sent to my room by mistake.' "'Miss McMillan did not look at the flowers, "'but gazed long at the card with the writing on it, "'and as she did so one tear and then another "'stole down the wrinkled face from behind the glasses. "'There is no mistake, is there?' asked Mr. Blair. "'You know the writer?' "'There is no mistake. "'No mistake.' "'replied Miss McMillan, in a low voice. "'He is a very dear and kind friend.' "'Then, as if unable to trust herself further, "'she took the flowers and hurriedly said, "'Thank you,' and left us. "'There,' I said to the lady on my left, "'your romance turns out to be nothing after all.' "'No, sir,' she cried with emphasis. "'The romance is there.' "'and very much more of a romance "'than if Miss McMillan was a young and silly girl of twenty. "'And perhaps she was right. "'We'll return with our second story 
right after this sponsor message. And now, The Hour and the Man by Robert Barr. And now, The Hour and the Man by Robert Barr. Prince Lotarno rose slowly to his feet, casting one malignant glance to the prisoner before him. "'You have heard,' he said, "'what is alleged against you. Have you anything to say in your defense?' The captured brigand laughed. "'The time for talk is past,' he cried. "'This has been a fine farce of a fair trial. You need not have wasted so much time over what you call evidence. I knew my doom when I fell into your hands. I killed your brother. You will kill me.' "'You have proven that I am a murderer and a robber. "'I could prove the same of you "'if you were bound hand and foot in my camp "'as I am bound in your castle. "'It's useless for me to tell you "'that I didn't know he was your brother, "'else it would not have happened, "'for the small robber always respects "'the larger and more powerful thief. "'When a wolf is down, "'the other wolves devour him. "'I am down, and you will have my head cut off "'or my body drawn asunder in your courtyard, "'whichever pleases your excellency best.' It is the fortune of war, and I do not complain. When I say that I am sorry I killed your brother, I merely mean I am sorry you were not the man who stood in the shoes when the shot was fired. You, having more men than I had, have scattered my followers and captured me. You may do with me what you please. My consolation is that the killing of me will not bring to life the man who was shot. Therefore conclude the farce that has dragged through so many weary hours. Pronounce my sentence. I'm ready." There was a moment's silence after the brigand had ceased speaking. Then the prince said in low tones, but in a voice that made itself heard in every part of the judgment hall, "'Your sentence is that on the 15th of January you shall be taken from your cell at four o'clock, conducted to the room of execution, and there beheaded.' The prince hesitated for a moment as he concluded the sentence, and seemed about to add something more, but apparently he remembered that a report of the trial was to go before the king." whose representative was present, and he was particularly desirous that nothing should go on the records which savored of old-time malignity, for it was well known that His Majesty had a particular aversion to the ancient forms of torture that had been present heretofore in his kingdom. Recollecting this, the prince sat down. The brigand laughed again. His sentence was evidently not so gruesome as he had expected. He was a man who had lived all his life in the mountains, and he had had no means of knowing that more merciful measures had been introduced into the policy of the government. "'I will keep the appointment,' he said jauntily, "'unless I have a more pressing engagement.' The brigand was led away to his cell. "'I hope,' said the prince, "'that you noted the defiant attitude of the prisoner.' "'I have not failed to do so, Your Excellency,' replied the ambassador. "'I think,' said the prince, "'that under the circumstances,' "'His treatment has been most merciful.' "'I am certain, Your Excellency,' said the ambassador, "'that His Majesty will be of the same opinion. "'For such a miscreant, beheading is too easy a death.' "'The prince was pleased to know that the opinion of the ambassador "'coincided so entirely with his own. "'The brigand Tozo was taken to a cell in the northern tower, "'where, by climbing on a bench, "'he could get a view of the profound valley "'at the mouth of which the castle was situated.' He well knew its impregnable position, commanding, as it did, the entrance to the valley. He knew also that if he succeeded in escaping from the castle, he was hemmed in by mountains practically unscalable, while the mouth of the gorge was so well guarded by the castle that it was impossible to get to the outer world through that gateway. Although he knew the mountains well, he realized that, with his band scattered, 
many killed, and the others fugitives, he would have a better chance of starving to death in the valley than of escaping out of it. He sat on the bench and thought over the situation. Why had the prince been so merciful? He had expected torture, whereas he was to meet the easiest death that a man could die. He felt satisfied there was something in this that he could not understand. Perhaps they intended to starve him to death, now that the appearance of a fair trial was over. Things could be done in the dungeon of a castle that the outside world knew nothing of. His fears of starvation were speedily put to an end by the appearance of his jailer with a better meal than he had had for some time, for during the last week he had wandered a fugitive in the mountains until captured by the prince's men, who evidently had orders to bring him in alive. Why then were they so anxious not to kill him in a fair fight if he were now to be merely beheaded? "'What is your name?' asked Toza of his jailer. "'I am called Polo,' was the answer. "'Do you know that I am to be beheaded on the 15th of the month?' "'I have heard so.' "'answered the man. "'And do you attend me until that time? "'I attend you while I am ordered to do so. "'If you talk much, I may be replaced.' "'That, then, is a tip for silence, good Paulo,' said the brigand. "'I always treat well those who serve me well. "'I regret, therefore, that I have no money with me, "'and so cannot recompense you for good service.' "'That is not necessary,' answered Paulo. "'I receive my recompense from the steward.' "'Ah, but the recompense of the steward "'and the recompense of a brigand chief "'are two very different things. "'Are there so many pickings in your position "'that you are rich, Paulo?' "'No, I am a poor man.' "'Well, under certain circumstances, "'I could make you rich.' Paulo's eyes glistened, "'but he made no direct reply. "'Finally he said, in a frightened whisper, "'I have tarried too long. "'I am watched. "'By and by the vigilance will be relaxed.' "'and then we may perhaps talk of riches.' "'With that the jailer took his departure. "'The brigand laughed softly to himself. "'Evidently,' he said, "'Paulo is not above the reach of a bribe. "'We will have further talk on the subject "'when the watchfulness is relaxed.' "'And so it grew to be a question "'of which should trust the other. "'The brigand asserted that hidden in the mountains "'he had gold and jewels, "'and these he would give to Paulo "'if he could contrive his escape from the castle.' "'Once free of the castle, I could soon make my way out of the valley,' said the brigand. "'I'm not so sure of that,' answered Paulo. "'The castle is well guarded, and when it is discovered that you have escaped, "'the alarm bell will be rung, and after that not a mouse can leave the valley "'without the soldiers knowing it.' "'The brigand pondered on the situation for some time, and at last said, "'I know the mountains well.' "'Yes,' said Paulo. "'But you are one man.' "'and the soldiers of the prince are many. "'Perhaps,' he added, "'if it were made worth my while, "'I could show you that I know the mountains "'even better than you do.' "'What do you mean?' asked the brigand, "'in an excited whisper. "'Do you know the tunnel?' inquired Paulo, "'with an anxious glance towards the door. "'What tunnel? I never heard of any. "'But it exists, nevertheless, "'a tunnel through the mountains to the world outside.' "'A tunnel through the mountains? Nonsense!' cried the brigand. "'I should have known of it if one existed. The work would be too great to accomplish. "'It was made long before your day, or mine either. "'If the castle had fallen, then those who were inside could escape through the tunnel. "'If you know of the entrance, it is near the waterfall up the valley, and it is covered with brushwood. "'What will you give me to place you at the entrance of that tunnel?' 
The brigand looked at Paulo sternly for a few moments. Then he answered slowly, "'Everything I possess.' "'And how much is that?' asked Paulo. "'It is more than you will ever earn by serving the prince.' "'Will you tell me where it is before I help you to escape from the castle and lead you to the tunnel?' "'Yes,' said Toza. "'Will you tell me now?' "'No. Bring me a paper tomorrow, and I will draw a plan showing you how to get it.' "'We'll return right after this message from our sponsors.' "'And now, back to our story.' "'When his jailer appeared, the day after Toza had given the plan, "'the brigand asked eagerly, "'Did you find the treasure?' "'I did,' said Paulo, quietly. "'And will you keep your word? "'Will you get me out of the castle?' "'I will get you out of the castle "'and lead you to the entrance of the tunnel. "'But after that, you must look to yourself.' "'Certainly,' said Toza. "'That was the bargain. "'Once out of this accursed valley, "'I can defy all the princes in Christendom. "'Have you a rope?' "'We shall need none,' said the jailer. "'I will come for you at midnight.' "'and take you out of the castle by the secret passage. "'Then your escape will not be noticed until morning.' "'At midnight his jailer came and led Toza through many a tortuous passage. "'The two men pausing now and then, "'holding their breaths anxiously as they came to an open court "'through which a guard paced. "'At last they were outside of the castle at one hour past midnight. "'The brigand drew a long breath of relief "'when he was once again out in the free air. "'Where is your tunnel?' he asked. "'in a somewhat distrustful whisper of his guide. "'Hush!' was the low answer. "'It is only a short distance from the castle, "'but every inch is guarded, "'and we cannot go direct. "'We must make for the other side of the valley "'and come to it from the north.' "'What?' cried Toza in amazement. "'Traverse the whole valley for a tunnel a few yards away?' "'It is the only safe plan,' said Paulo. "'If you wish to go by the direct way, "'I must leave you to your own devices.' "'I am in your hands,' said the brigand, with a sigh. "'Take me where you will, so long as you lead me to the entrance of the tunnel.' They passed down and down around the heights on which the castle stood, and crossed a purling little river by means of stepping-stones. Once Toza fell into the water, but was rescued by his guide. There was still no alarm from the castle as daylight began to break. As it grew more light, they both crawled into a cave which had a low opening difficult to find, and there Apollo gave the brigand his breakfast, which he took from a little bag slung by a strap across his shoulder. "'What are we going to do for food if we are to be days between here and the tunnel?' asked Toza. "'Oh, I have arranged for that, and a quantity of food has been placed where we are most likely to want it. I will get it while you sleep.' "'But if you are captured, what am I to do?' asked Toza. "'Can you not tell me now how to find the tunnel?' "'as I told you how to find the treasure?' "'Paulo pondered over this for a moment, and then said, "'Yes, I think it would be a safer way. "'You must follow the stream until you reach the place "'where the torrent from the east joins it. "'Among the hills there is a waterfall, "'and halfway up the precipice on a shelf of rock "'there are sticks and bushes. "'Clear them away, and you will find the entrance to the tunnel. "'Go through the tunnel until you come to a door, "'which is bolted on this side. "'When you have passed through, you will see the end of your journey.' Shortly after daybreak, the big bell of the castle began to toll, and before noon the soldiers were beating the bushes all around them. They were so close that the two men could hear their voices from their hiding place, where they lay in their wet clothes, breathlessly expecting every moment to be discovered. The conversation of two soldiers who were nearest them nearly caused the hearts of the hiding listeners to stop beating. "'Is there not a cave near here?' 
asked one. "'Let us search for it.' "'Nonsense,' said the other. "'I tell you that they could not have come this far already. "'Why could they not have escaped when the guard changed at midnight?' "'insisted the first speaker. "'Because Paolo was seen crossing the courtyard at midnight, "'and they could have had no other chance of getting away "'until just before daybreak.' "'This answer seemed to satisfy his comrade, "'and the search was given up "'just as they were about to come upon the fugitives. "'It was a narrow escape, "'and brave as the robber was, he looked pale, "'while Paolo was in a state of collapse. "'Many times during the nights and days that followed, "'the brigand and his guide almost fell into the hands "'of the minions of the prince. "'Exposure, privation, semi-starvation, "'and worse than all, "'the alternate wrenchings of hope and fear "'began to tell upon the stalwart frame of the brigand. "'Some days and nights of cold winter rain added to their misery. "'They dare not seek shelter, "'for every habitable place was watched.' When daylight overtook them on their last night's crawl through the valley, they were within a short distance of the waterfall, whose low roar now came soothingly down to them. "'Never mind the daylight,' said Toza. "'Let us push on and reach the tunnel.' "'I can go no further,' moaned Paolo. "'I'm exhausted.' "'Nonsense!' cried Toza. "'It is but a short distance.' "'The distance is greater than you think. Besides, we are in full view of the castle.' "'Would you risk everything now that the game is nearly won? "'You must not forget that the stake here is your head, "'and remember what day this is.' "'What day is it?' asked the brigand, turning on his guide. "'It is the 15th of January, the day on which you were to be executed.' "'Toza caught his breath sharply. "'Danger and want had made a coward of him, and he shuddered now, "'which he had not done when he was on his trial and condemned to death. "'How do you know it's the 15th?' "'he asked at last. "'Paolo held up his stick, "'notched after the method of Robinson Crusoe. "'I am not so strong as you are, "'and if you would let me rest here until the afternoon, "'I am willing to make a last effort "'and try to reach the entrance of the tunnel.' "'Very well,' said Toza, shortly. "'As they lay there that forenoon, neither could sleep. "'The noise of the waterfall was music to the ears of both. "'Their long, toilsome journey was almost over.' "'What did you do with the gold that you found in the mountains?' asked Toza suddenly. Paolo was taken unawares, and answered, without thinking, "'I left her where it was. I will get it after.' The brigand said nothing, but that remark condemned Paolo to death. Toza resolved to murder him as soon as they were well out of the tunnel, and get the gold himself. They left their hiding place shortly before twelve o'clock. <clears throat> They left their hiding place shortly before twelve o'clock, but their progress was so slow, crawling, as they had to do, up the steep side of the mountain, under cover, under cover of bushes and trees, that it was well after three when they came to the waterfall, which they crossed, as best they could, on stones and logs. There, said Toza, shaking himself, that is our last wedding. Now for the tunnel. The rocky sides of the waterfall hid them from the view, hid them from view of the castle, "'but Paolo called the brigands' attention "'to the fact that they could be easily seen "'from the other side of the valley. "'It doesn't matter now,' said Toza. "'Lead the way as quickly as you can "'to the mouth of the cavern.' "'Paolo scrambled on until he reached a shelf "'about halfway up the cataract. "'He threw aside bushes, brambles, and logs, "'speedily disclosing a hole large enough "'to admit a man. "'You go first, said Paolo, standing aside. "'No,' answered Toza. "'You know the way, and must go first.' 
"'You cannot think that I wish to harm you. "'I am completely unarmed.' "'Nevertheless,' said Paulo, "'I shall not go first. "'I did not like the way you looked at me "'when I told you the gold was still in the hills. "'I admit that I distrust you.' "'Oh, very well,' laughed Toza. "'It really doesn't matter.' "'And he crawled into the hole in the rock, "'Paulo following him. "'Before long the tunnel enlarged "'so that a man could stand upright. "'Stop,' said Paulo. "'There is the door, near here.' "'Yes,' said the robber. "'I remember that you spoke of a door, adding, however, "'What is it for, and why is it locked?' "'It is bolted on this side,' answered Paulo, "'and we shall have no difficulty in opening it.' "'What is it for?' repeated the brigand. "'It is to prevent the current of air running through the tunnel "'and blowing away the obstruction at this end,' said the guide. "'Here it is.' "'said Toza, as he felt down its edge for the bolt. "'The bolt drew back easily, and the door opened. "'The next instant the brigand was pushed rudely into a room, "'and he heard the bolt thrust back into its place "'almost simultaneously with the noise of the closing door. "'For a moment his eyes were dazzled by the light. "'He was in an apartment blazing with torches "'held by a dozen men standing about. "'In the center of the room was a block covered with black cloth.' "'and beside it stood a masked executioner "'resting the corner of a gleaming axe "'on the black draped block "'with his hands crossed over the end of the axe's handle. "'The prince stood there surrounded by his ministers. "'Above his head was a clock "'with the minute hand pointed to the hour of four. "'You're just in time,' said the prince, grimly. "'We are waiting for you.' "'Ouch!' Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us for these two great stories from Robert Barr. This is your host, John Hagedorn, with 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. And a little hint for you, we're going to be bringing up a lot more of those tales in the very near future. So stay tuned, and thank you very much for being such great fans. We do appreciate our patrons at patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network. For about the price of a cup of blended coffee every month, they help us to go forward as we move toward 2001 episodes. You all know that we recently just did pass 1001 episodes for the 1001 Stories Network. A thanks to all our listeners and all our supporters, and those who share our stories and our podcast with others and tell others about us. We also appreciate your reviews, and the easiest ones for us to find are those at Apple. So if you have a few minutes, please do stop and send us a nice review. We appreciate kind reviews, and it helps new listeners find us. Thanks for joining us today at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Everyone, stay safe out there, and we'll be back soon.